All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We will close out this epistle to um, the Corinthians, the first letter written to them, or second or third, I forgot, in my studying, but we have two of them in our Bible. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and the title of our message is A Collection and a Conclusion, and so we have that a collection, and a conclusion. We'll read through the chapter, and then I'll come back and just hit on things that stood out to me, and uh, we'll go through this as we close out. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just ask, Lord, that you would speak to us as we desire to hear from you. We thank you, Lord, for the things that we have learned thus far as we've been going through this epistle to the, to the Corinthians, Lord, and we just pray that you would continue to speak to us, Lord. So thank you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read through the chapter, and then I'll come back. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve, by your letters I will send to bear your gifts to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I, also go, that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, But send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge that you, I'm sorry, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The church of Asia greets you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. 
And so Paul closes out his corrective letter here to this church in Corinth. And I find it interesting as you read through First and Second Corinthians that this would be a corrective epistle and Second Corinthians would be his most emotional letter written to the churches. And so uh, when we get to that place, to that stage, we're going to be able to see um, just that pathos come out in the heart of Paul. But I do find Paul's example of correcting extremely beneficial as a leader and having to be in that position of correcting individuals, just the balance of truth and grace, the balance of firmness, but yet on the other hand, love. And so he doesn't mince words, he doesn't tiptoe around issues, but at the same time, there's such a, just a heartfelt love that comes from Paul as he's even correcting this church that finds itself in the city of Corinth. Remember, he would spend about a year and a half, 18 months with them there, and he would see them grow and develop. Many of them would come to know the Lord through his ministry, and just um, his heart just comes through as he's getting uh, a message from Chloe's house that things are out of order, there's divisions, there's schisms, and these things aren't from God. These things aren't beneficial to the church. And so he's addressing those things Notice in this chapter, he begins now concerning the collection for the saints. And, and that should ring a bell if you jump back over a couple chapters with me. In chapter 12, verse 1, notice he writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. And then he goes on to talk to us about spiritual gifts. He'll do that again in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. He says, now concerning things offered to idols. And in chapter 7, he says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And then he talks about marriage issues. And so Paul is here addressing finally in this last chapter concerning things that you wrote to me about. It began in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians where he had gotten word from Chloe's house that things were out of order. And then he goes in chapter 5 and he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and then he addresses that. And so you can see that he's getting a report from Chloe's house. There's things that are reported to him that he's addressing, and then now concerning the things that you wrote to me about. So and they, they had sent him a letter, and it's those things that he is addressing throughout this epistle, this letter written to the church in the city of Corinth. And so that gives us kind of a, a full view of the book, again, being a corrective Letter And let me ask you, are there people in your life that you allow to bring correction? Have you isolated yourself so much from people and, and authorities and individuals that can no longer speak truth into your life and love? Because that's an important thing for us as Christians. If we want to see ourselves grow, if we want to see ourselves continue to develop and to, to mature in the things of God. That's how God does it. He does it through bringing correction. He does it through pointing out things in our lives that are, that are um, not good. We can isolate ourselves. And we can put ourselves in front of people that are just always answering in the affirmative. Or they call them yes men. Yes individuals that are always just telling us what we want to hear. If you look at the two deaths recently that happened. Um, not recently but definitely last year and a few years back, Michael Jackson and Prince. I grew up with Michael Jackson and Prince. And a lot of celebrities reach the point in their lives where everybody around them is simply telling them yes. Nobody is willing to tell them no. Why? Because they have power and they have money. 
And so they just surround themselves with individuals that will tell them yes. And unfortunately, two incredible musicians died because of that. Because nobody was willing to tell them, hey, um, this might not be a good idea, these drugs that you're taking. In Michael Jackson's case, he was taking drugs that would basically people uh, in surgery would put them out to sleep so that they could perform surgery on them and then bring them back. And, And it's almost like they're taking you to the point of death so that you don't feel anything. That's what he wanted to do to be able to sleep because he couldn't sleep because of all the thoughts that would race through his mind. And so he had literally hired a doctor to be able to do this. In the case of Prince, again, an individual that was taking medicine that he shouldn't have been taking and it affected him in that way where he ended up dying. But for you and me as Christians, regardless of what state we're at, maybe we're not at that level, right? But do we have individuals that speak truth into our lives? And what do we do with that truth? Are we correctable? Are we teachable? Are we trainable? In this case, you had a church in Corinth, and they had a leader, Paul, the apostle, who had to bring this corrective letter to be able to help them. So let's take a few, a look at the, a few of the things that the Lord has shown me this week as I had an opportunity to study. Let's read verses 1 and 2, and this is where we see the title of the message. Uh, we start with the first part, a collection. He says in verses 1 and 2, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. And so Paul is going to take up a collection. He's not there at this time at the church in Corinth. He's sending them a letter. And in the letter, he's letting them know that the church in Jerusalem needs help. Now, we might ask the question, why does the church in Jerusalem need help? Or, have you ever seen anybody and you see them in a condition where they need help and you ask yourself, I wonder what happened. I wonder why they need help. I wonder why that person doesn't have a job. I wonder why they can't tend to their needs. I wonder why they can't get their life together. I wonder why they can't figure out life out. I have a job. I'm able to put a roof over my head and clothes on my back and food on my table and that for my family. And so I wonder how they got to this position. And I think that's not bad. That's not bad that we ask those types of questions. But I think we do need to be careful because the heart of God is we serve a gracious God. We serve a giving God. And in being judgmental, where we think we know how people get in situations, to be honest with you, we we don't always know. In this case, the church in Jerusalem was in need. We know this about the church of Jerusalem. They were a very gracious church. Remember in Acts chapter 6, when they had this um, ministry to the widows, they had the Hellenistic uh, widows and the Jewish widows, and, and there was something about the food distribution that wasn't flowing, but nonetheless, we know that they were giving food to widows, and that's the heart of God, isn't it? In James, the Bible says that we should visit orphans and widows in their time of distress, and so they were doing a good thing, that church. It was also prophesied in the book of Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, that there would be a famine in Jerusalem, 
And so even though we can ask the question, hey, I wonder what's wrong with the church in Jerusalem that they need our financial help, sometimes there's good reasons for these things. When I see individuals who are like either homeless or are in need of basic needs, I can't, I can't deny that, you know, I do ask, I wonder what's wrong. But that shouldn't stop us from reaching out to people to be able to help in times of need. Now, there are general principles from the Bible for supporting the poor in church. So let me go through some of these with you. Number one, the church has an ob- absolute obligation to help the truly needy. And so we can sit there and politically kind of break it down and wonder about all of these different things, but bottom line, we have an absolute obligation to be able to help people who are in need. Number two, the church must discern who the truly needy are. The Bible has a lot to say about money and finances and what we do with our money, but ultimately, we need to discern who the truly needy are because not everybody is truly needy. Number three, if one can work to support himself, he is not truly needy and must provide for his own needs. And so if there's a reason why a person can't work, we have to differentiate between somebody who won't work. And if there's somebody who won't work, then maybe that's not somebody that we should help. But if they can't work, then that's somebody we should discern and come alongside of them. Number four, if one can be supported by their family, he is not truly needy and should not be supported by the church. A lot of times in our culture, what happens is we'll get people that come into the church. And so I'll see maybe a young guy and a young girl, and they'll have a little baby in a stroller, and they'll say, hey, church, can you help me? Can you help me financially? Can you give me something? And so through my time of being here for six and a half years, I've kind of seen the different groups that have come through asking for help. And so because of that, we've established a biblical um, kind of foundation or outline of how we help and when we help people. And so they should be a member of our church. They should be a member of our community. They should be going here faithfully. They should be contributing to the needs. We'll never deny somebody food, by the way. If somebody walks into the doors of this church and they haven't eaten and they said, hey, can you feed me? Yeah, we'll feed you. We'll take you somewhere and buy you something to eat. But as far as reaching out and helping them financially, hey, I missed three payments on my Cadillac Escalade. You think you can hook that up for me? Well, you're not even part of our community. And so, you know, again, there's guidelines and things that we use here to be able to help those people out. Number five, those who are supported by the church must make some return to the church body. And again, these are all biblical concepts taken from 1 Timothy chapter 5. This one's found in verse 5 and verse 10. And so in those two verses, the Bible says, are they contributing to the needs of the body? Maybe they don't have money, but they have service. They can do something. They can clean. They can cut the grounds, you know, if there's a a need in that case. And so those are things that we're looking for biblically. Number six, is it right for the church to examine the more, it is right, I'm sorry, for the church to examine moral conduct before giving support. And this is a very tough thing because a lot of times the very behavior that the people are doing who are asking for money have led to the fact that they need money. And so they've wasted their money through Uh, living that would be sinful outside of the Bible and what the Bible tells us they should be doing. 
And so again, we need to discern that because God has allowed individuals to bottom out and have no money so that he can begin to get their attention and begin to grow them up and have them take responsibility for the bad choices they've made and we're coming along helping them out working against God so that they can repent. And that's very tough sometimes, especially for parents in this day and age as they see their kids on drugs or uh, under the influence of alcohol or substance and they're coming alongside and helping them with that. Enablers, we call them. Individuals that are codependent to this negative behavior and yet we're fighting God as God is trying to bring them to a place where they would repent and begin to look up. Number seven, the support of the church should be for the most basic necessities of living. And so again, if somebody does come in and say, I got an extra boat and I need help. Now, yeah, those aren't your basic needs. The Greek word for collection is logia, L-O-G-I-A. It means an extra collection, one that is not compulsory, that was not a tax upon the Christians at Corinth. They were free to give as their hearts directed them. So the commandment coupled with the idea of an extra collection shows that they were commanded to take an offering, but not every Christian was commanded to individually give. They had to give as God had put it on their hearts to give. The normal collection that we take for the church, and if you've been at this church for very long, you'll notice that we don't talk about money very often, and we don't pound um, and insist on money. Part of it comes from, I think, what Pastor Chuck did as he came out of the ministry that he, he was in, or the church that he was involved in, and then the Lord had led him to start Calvary Chapel. But he had this saying, he said, where, where the Lord guides, he provides. And so Pastor Chuck Smith had this awesome perspective on money, um, but I don't think we should shy away from talking about money, Absolutely. Me, personally, I come out of a church where they used to guilt you into giving. At the church that my wife and I were saved at, they used to post on the exit of the wall of the, where you would exit the church on the door, they would post who gave what each year. And so you would have the last name of that family and how much they gave posted on the wall. And so they would embarrass you through positive peer pressure to give more. Because if you see your name and you're like, oh, dang, we only gave like 300, man. The Joneses gave 850. Dang, they really love Jesus, huh? And so it was a kind of a positive peer pressure way to get you to give. But I thought it was a horrible thing because we're supposed to give from our heart and not under compulsion. I don't like to this, again, these are just personal things. I don't like to be sold a bill of goods. I don't know if you've ever been to a church, but you feel that the message is um, not sincere, an insincere message, or it's an attempt to to sell you a bill of goods. And I never like that, to to be sitting to to hear something like that. Um, Also, I don't know if you've noticed it, but in television, now they're putting commercials in the middle of the television program. And so they're selling you while you're watching a program. Biggest Loser, for example, is one that does this. So it was about three, four years ago that they started introducing Jenny O ground turkey. And they would do it right in the middle of the show. And so they're selling you so that you can buy Jenny O turkey, uh, ground, ground turkey, uh, to make your hamburgers from now on. And 
Again, it's in the middle of the show, and I just, I don't like to be sold. I don't like that personally. And so you'll notice here we have the offering in the back, and what we're referring to here is not the general tithe that you give uh, weekly. That's to come into the storehouse. What they're talking about here is an extra offering. Now, if you've been here for any period of time, you know that we rarely ever take an extra offering. I was riding in a bus taking my, uh, one of my best friend's wife up to camp not too long ago. And she was talking about the church that her parents attend. And they take eight offerings every single service. Eight offerings every single service. And so I'm driving the bus and she's sitting right here. So I'm like, well, I, I got your ear. You ain't going nowhere run that down. Explain that to me. How does that work? And she began to explain how they take eight offerings. They'll have a regular offering. They'll have a pastor's offering. They'll have a, 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 a building, like um, if we're fixing the building offering. They'll have a pastor's vacation offering. And if the offering's not enough, when the ushers collect the offering, they'll go back and they'll count it. And if it's not enough, they'll come back and shame the congregation and saying, how's a pastor supposed to go on vacation with this right here? I mean, come on, guys, you only, you know, dig deeper, dig deeper, and then they'll do an offering after offering after offering. Again, personally, all that stuff for me is, um, it's, it's, it's yucky. I just don't like it. And so we may have an extra offering two to three times a year. And the only time that this church, as long as I've been here, has had an extra offering is when the kids are going up to camp so that we can help support some of the kids who can't afford it. That has been the only time that we've done an extra offering. And again, it comes through the history of what I've seen in churches and what I personally don't like. And I believe that God has called us to give. So when we come across passages like this, I don't think I need to shy away from them. Money makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but if you're not a giver, you're not in line with God. And I would question the sincerity of how much you truly know God, because our God is a giver. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave the very best that he had. And as an extension of God, we are called to be gracious, and we are called to give. And so, that's just part of it. In... This section, notice he says in verse 2, on the first day of the week. So let me give you some outlines for giving. Paul wanted their giving to be a systematic, not haphazard. When they came together for worship in the word, they were commanded to receive an offering at the same time. Then he goes on to say, let each one of you, who was supposed to give? Each one. Paul wanted all to give. Every Christian should be a giver because God is a giver. And then it goes on to say, lay something aside. Storing up has the idea of coming to church with your gift already prepared. In other words, you should seek God about your gift at home and prepare it at home. This makes one seek the Lord uh, more in their giving and helps them resist any manipulation to give. It goes on to say, as he may prosper means that believers who have more should give more. And then it says we shouldn't fear um, giving generously. Proverbs 11.24 is a great commentary on this idea. There is one who scatters yet increases more, 
And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Think about it. Nobody sees a farmer going out to plant seeds thinking that the more seeds he gets, the more wasteful he's being. They understand the idea and the concept of sowing and reaping. And so even though giving in the church has become something that has been adulterated and leaves a bad taste in so many people's mouth, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God will be a debtor to no man. And though I don't believe that if you give, you're going to get in proportion to what you're giving as far as what you're giving. In other words, if I give $100, I'm not going to reap $1,000, but I may reap health. I may reap peace. I may reap intangible things that you can't put a price on. And I would so much rather have those things because those things have of greater value than money. And so being faithful to God and walking in obedience to what he's calling us to reaps rewards that are beyond us, again, because God will be a debtor to no man. That there be no collection when I come. Paul didn't want to manipulate anyone. He wanted giving to be from the heart as the heart heard from God, not in response to a high pressure fundraiser. Imagine Paul coming to church and and sitting next to you and the bucket goes around or the basket goes around and you're like, oh shoot. You go write a check even if it bounces. Paul's sitting next to me, man. I gotta stick something in there. And so he didn't want that to happen. And then he goes on to say in the same section that why don't you guys prayerfully consider who you would have take the money to Jerusalem. So notice, it wasn't even an issue that Paul wanted money. He wanted to hold the money. The purpose of this collection was to take it to the church in Jerusalem who had a need. And he says, why don't you guys vote for somebody to do that? And if you want me to go, I'll go with them, but I don't have to go. And so Paul's attitude toward money was pretty awesome. It goes on now as we move on from this topic of money and giving. And let's jump down to verse 11. He says, Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. He's speaking of Timothy. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. I I find this interesting. This is the Apostle Paul, and Apollos is a leader in the church as well. And Paul, as this apostle, is encouraging Apollos to go, but he doesn't want to go. And Paul doesn't insist on it. As a leader, he's not saying, you have to listen to me. He's just saying, you know what? He's going to come at a convenient time. He goes on in verse 13 to say, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. The balance of Paul to be able to take this corrective letter and do it with this foundation of love as he speaks is something that is, I find, miraculous. Just, if you have a position of authority, just that balance between grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth is a very difficult balance to achieve. If you've ever been placed in a position of leadership, you know exactly what I mean. Most today are shying away from truth because they don't want to unnecessarily offend. Guess what? Truth can be offensive sometimes, can it? If you're doing something wrong and somebody's telling you that you're doing something wrong, how do you say that in an unoffensive way? And so that is meant to offend, 
But in this day and age of political correctness, we're not allowed to speak the truth anymore. We're not allowed to offend. The gospel is an offense, the Bible says. The fact that you're a sinner on your way to hell is offensive to every single one of us. I'm a sinner. Who are you talking about? No sinner. Hey, you know you are. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, maybe once. Liar? You're lying right now. You're lying. You're a liar. That's offensive. And so this balance that Paul gives of this grace and truth. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. In a sense, each one of these means the same thing, simply saying it in a different way. Christians are, like, are to be like a strong soldiers on guard watching for their Lord's return. We can't be weak. We can't shy away from the truth. We've been given something precious and vessels that are, what are we? We are jars of clay. And so that precious message is to come forth from us. Jesus commanded us to watch in Matthew 24 and Matthew 26 and Mark 13. Paul warned Christians to stand fast in their liberty in Jesus in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. In Christian unity in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. In the Lord himself in Philippians 4, verse 1. And in teaching of the apostles, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. This is the only place in the New Testament where the word translated be brave is used. Adrizomai. Literally, it means to act like a man. Be brave in the King James Version is quit you like men. That is a good, accurate translation of the idea behind the Greek word. So let all that you do be done with love, he says in this next verse. All the watching, all the standing fast, all the bravery and all the strength the Corinthian Christians might show, meant nothing without love. They were called to do all those things in a meek, humble spirit of love. Jump down to verses 19 and 20. The Bible says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And so the early church met in houses. A church building wouldn't come up until the third century. And so we would see 200 plus years go by where they would meet in houses. And in those houses, they would house at the most maybe 30 people. And so this age that we live in of the mega church is is something that is, is fairly new for the church. And I believe that God meant us to meet with smaller groups. And that's where accountability is supposed to be developed. And being corrected, as I mentioned at the beginning of the study, is something that I believe that God wants for each one of us as we grow. And so if you think of that idea of a small group, a small group so that you can, your life can be kind of intermingled, interfused with the lives of others. And you say, well, I don't really want to do that. That's uncomfortable and inconvenient and... Man, that's just annoying, dude, to have people know my business. You know what? I think God meant us to be able to associate in that way. And again, there's an accountability there. And we live in such an isolated society where everybody, we just want to retreat and retreat and retreat, and we don't want to be bothered. We're with people at work all day or people at school all day, and it's like, oh, I'm done with people. But I think God would have us to 
be associated with people so that we can hurt with people who hurt, so that we can pray for people who have genuine prayer needs, and so that they can keep us accountable because we need that accountability. Again, if you don't have this, I encourage you strongly, get into a small group of individuals that your life can connect with their lives. You can love on them, they can love on you, but also they can hold you accountable. I remember last year, I brought the uh, leaders of this church together and I told them, I need you to hold me accountable because I have blind sides that I don't know I have. If I knew I had them, I would hope that I would address them, right? I have weaknesses. There are things in my life, areas that I just don't know are weak. And so I need you. I need people who are strong to be able to speak the truth and love to me to let me know, hey, these are areas, things that you need addressed. And so I encourage you guys. The church met in houses. They were small groups. I think it's very important for us. Morris notes that the entertainment, entertaining room of a moderately well-to-do household could hold about 30 people comfortably. Therefore, in any given city, there were probably many different houses uh, or house churches. In verse 22, notice it says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, O Lord, come. And so the last two words that he would use are anathema, let him be accursed, and O Lord come is maranatha, a saying that the early church had. But notice he says, if anyone does not love the Lord. And how can we grow in love for the Lord? Samuel Rutherford on how to grow in love to Jesus, he says this, strive to make prayer and reading and holy conference your delight. And when delight cometh in, you shall little by little find the sweetness of Christ, till at length your soul be overhead and ears in Christ's sweetness. Then shall you be taken up to the top of the mountain with the Lord to know the delights of spiritual love and the glory of excellency of a seen, revealed, felt, and embraced Christ. And then you shall not be able to lose yourself off from Christ and to bind your soul to the old lovers, Then and never till then are all the paces, motions, and wheels of your soul in a right tune and spiritual temper. But if this world and the lust thereof be your delight, I know not what Christ can make of you. You cannot be metal for a vessel of glory and mercy. My desire is that the Lord would give me broader and deeper thoughts to feed myself with wondering at his love. I would and I could weigh weigh it but I have no balance for it. When I have worn my tongue on the stump in praising Christ, I have done nothing to him. What remaineth then but that my debt to the love of Christ lie unpaid for all eternity. And so what he's saying is, how do we grow in deeper love for Christ? We do it through Bible reading, we do it through prayer, and we do it through fellowship, koinonia, interacting with one another, And we grow in this love for God. And so as we close, we see the balance of 1 Corinthians, this first letter, this first epistle that Paul would write to this church in the city of Corinth. And hopefully we're drawing from it the need for correction in our own lives. Do you have a desire to grow? Or are you happy where you're at? Are you content to just be there and stay there? 
Hopefully as Christians, all of us have a desire to continue to grow in the things of God. And it is difficult. It is hard for somebody to hold the mirror, right, up and and to show and point out the things that need to be addressed. But it is so needful in the life of the child of God to continue to grow in the things of God and the grace and knowledge of God's word. And so hopefully, just as we begin this new year, you're allowing yourself to be held accountable where people who you know love you or people who don't even love you. doesn't matter. God can use anybody to speak truth into our lives, right? But hopefully there are people in your life that you have allowed to be able to come in and speak that truth so that you can say, wow, I didn't, I didn't know I had that fault. Or I didn't know I had that negative thing. But thanks for pointing that out and asking God to be able to help you grow in that. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter, this epistle written to the church in Corinth. And Father, I pray that we would be those who like, those who Paul wrote to, Father, would be able to grow in the things of God. Lord, that none of us would think that we've arrived, that we were beyond reproof or correction, that we are so prideful that we are waiting for the rest of the body of Christ to catch up with us. But on the other hand, I pray that we would be those who humbly acknowledge, Lord, that we need to grow, we need to be desperate for truth and allowing people to be able to speak truth in our lives. And so, thank you so much for just the example that Paul led. And may we be uh, leaders, Father, who speak the truth in love, just watching that balance of grace and truth. May we not shy away from truth, but may we have the foundation of love and grace to be able to speak it with. So help us in that, Lord as we give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.